0: Shall we? Keep your eyes peeled for mushrooms, Flint. Magic or otherwise. Hey, everybody. It's your friend Steve here. Monday, November 27th. uh, At the time of this recording, anyway. And uh, this is episode 18 of the Baked and Awake show. I thank you all sincerely for joining me, whether it's tonight, tomorrow, hopefully even many years from now in some archival form, if nothing else. We've just concluded Thanksgiving holiday 2017 here in the U.S., and I myself am settling down to the desk finally after a long weekend of picking away at internet searches and not feeling terribly productive at it at all. But I decided, as I have time and again in our short journey so far, that the only way to make any kind of episode, let alone a decent one, you know, is to stop clicking the trackpad and start clicking the keyboard. You know, it's funny to me, as I type these words, as I read these words back now into the microphone, I started podcasting because I thought I was too lazy to write, and indeed largely I feel like I am, but as I listen to my own shows after they're published, I know which ones fall better on my ear personally. Some of these shows are more written out than others, and as many of you will no doubt have observed by now. Sometimes I'm feeling particularly inspired, you know, and write quite a bit of my own commentary around a given topic, while at the same time basing the discussion on some agreeably germane event, art piece, or news source, You know, that many of us may be familiar with from other places, including many a more experienced researcher, you know, or broadcasters than yours truly. Um, Other shows, you know, I might read a lot more of other people's work and words, either because I feel perhaps I don't know the subject well enough to expand upon it more myself. You know, or, well, you know, because I want to yak about something, maybe, you know, that I just am finding out about, sometimes in real time, as we go. Making sure that background music from Auntie Lourdes isn't too, too overpowering here while we're talking. But yeah, you know, uh, I don't prefer those shows to the former, okay, where I do get the time and put in the time on scripting a little more, so to speak. They're not exactly scripts in my mind so much as, you know, um, stream of consciousness kind of data dumps from, you know, my mind. And, you know, I dump them straight into the Google Docs, I polish them up for grammar, Right, and we've talked about this a little bit before then I add links to the sources right, to the rabbit holes that I've just been down uh, and then I, I hope that some of you make it to the actual show notes the, the, w- the best places to read those are in iTunes where the formatting and links are all preserved right inside the um, podcasting app uh, or if you go straight to our uh, RSS feed at libsyn.com Uh, our Baked and Awake uh, direct feed. You can find that easily by searching Baked and Awake. Um, And you'll find, you know, my website, bakedandawake.com, which when you click the read more links on any of the descriptions for the episodes there, it takes you directly to Libsyn. Or you should also quickly see the link to the Libsyn direct link. Um, uh, Yeah, anyway, I work... You know, semi-hard on those show notes, so I try to include the, the sort of path that I've just been down, so if you care to do so, you can, you know, take some of that journey with me and perhaps, you know, tell me something afterwards, uh, having looked into things, something that I missed, overlooked, didn't know, hadn't discovered yet, um, or just a, a conclusion or observation that you drew uh, as a result of researching the same topic. Yeah. Anyway, um, I'm new at this. I'm, what, I've got 17 episodes under our belt right now. And it's a baby belt at this point. I'm trying really hard just to hold, you know, my own. Hold to my own minimum quality standards at all times. But preferably to somewhat quickly improve in this activity, researching, parsing the information I come across, internalizing it in some way, and finally trying to share cogently what I feel I've learned with you, whoever you are, wherever you are, whenever you are listening to this. You've come. We've all made it here. Whatever here in this context is. I'm grateful for the opportunity to connect with you through our shared interests. And I promise not to waste our time together, ever. I'll stop before I'll ever let that be my default state. I hope we only ever resemble a bro-pod, in air quotes, with our title. Which, by the way, by being here, you've demonstrated that you understood and saw past that ruse that we employed with Baked and Wake. Anyway, we're going to jump into the sort of planned info for the episode here in just a second and I have several stories I want to talk about in the realm of artificial intelligence and we're going to touch a little bit on uh, cryptocurrency uh, briefly and follow up from last episode Uh, and we're going to wrap up with a uh, little story about the Dogon cannabis origin myth and uh, yeah then I've also included a short really spontaneous few minutes of audio of a walk I took around the block earlier today trying to psych myself up and get ready for the episode And uh, it's really more of a, a few disjointed thoughts about you know my current state of confidence or lack thereof for podcasting. There's a nice little change of pace on this next track here. (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, me exploring with myself some of the reasons why I'm trying to do this. Um, I've got some exciting stuff that I want to share about upcoming episodes but I say I want to share it but I don't want to share it because I'm, I am i have this episode coming up in I think two episodes we're going to call it our season end or our season finale like we're going to wrap up with like episode 20 uh mid-December right before Christmas I might give myself a little leeway to, to fudge a week here over the Christmas and New Year's holiday um You know, maybe we wait two weeks to put an episode out at the beginning of uh, January for uh, the first episode of season quote-unquote two uh, for the show. Um, But yeah, so uh, there's exciting stuff coming. And I hope to, and I'm looking forward to the PodCon event coming up in just a couple of weeks here now. Uh, as well, less than two weeks now, December 9th, as a matter of fact, uh, that starts where I'll get to spend a little bit more time working on this craft. Um, I hope you bear with me, guys. You know, I, I don't represent myself as a journalist or a rigorous academic researcher. I, don't, I hope I don't come across as trying to strongly position myself behind, you know, too much of what we've covered thus far on the show. I hope to bring quality, move conversations forward and and be having conversations that many of us, especially those of you who bother to tune in and listen, uh, you know are thinking about and having versions of yourselves with your friends and family and with your spouses on your own, yeah. And, you know, if I can serve as, you know, one person who spends a little extra time on these matters each week and collates a few different links and things together for you to help in your own explorations, then, you know, I'll be pretty close to accomplishing, you know, one of my biggest goals with the whole podcast. Um... You know, we're baked and we're awake, and we don't think that saying either of those things, you know, makes us experts, makes us authorities, makes us gurus. Uh, We're learning and exploring, we're talking about stuff that a lot of other people talk about too. Some folks do a better job at it than us. But I also think, I hope, we, and myself specifically, you know, are somehow doing it a little better than a few others are, too. Um, And that's not taking anything away from the great content that's being created by tons of different folks. No judgment here about anybody's style. Um, The content has to match the listener the viewer, the reader, the audience. Anyway, thanks for listening to that rant, which went on a little longer than intended. So let's jump in. We'll find our uh, first topic here... um, which is a little bit of old business from last week. Uh, We were talking about cryptocurrencies last week in episode 17, and I found two really cool, uh, one of which I I finished up with a um, story that I found on a crazy website uh, positing the possibility that Bitcoin was created by a rogue AI. But here I have two little stories that I want to spend a moment on, the first of which is entitled... Did Elon Musk create Bitcoin? So, without further ado, and without pausing to take a break to do it, I've rolled up a couple of marijuana cigarettes to enjoy while we talk. Let's put fire to the first one here. Oh, and this came from one of my very favorite daily news sources, Slashdot.org. Kind of a cool techie, nerdy... Uh, news source that seems a little bit less um, you know, I don't know it's a little bit less uh, top-down it seems a little bit more crowdsourced in terms of uh, its reddity that way, in terms of what bubbles up to the front page of Slashdot Uh, if you're not familiar with them, check them out they're they're a great uh, format for getting in particular cool tech news and stuff hence, which is why we're reading about cryptocurrencies here so uh, this was posted by editor David um, this past Sunday, and uh, this came from CryptoCoinsNews.com. Did Elon Musk create Bitcoin? All right. An anonymous reader quotes, CryptoCoins News. It should be no surprise that the elusive hunt for Satoshi Nakamoto, often referred to as the father of Bitcoin, has led to the theory that Elon Musk has been hiding a big secret from all of us. It goes on. Sahil Gupta, a computer science student at Yale University and former intern at SpaceX, believes just this. Bitcoin was written by someone with mastery of C++, a language Musk has utilized heavily at SpaceX. Musk's 2013 Hyperloop paper also provided insight into his deep understanding of cryptography and economics. One week before Gupta's Medium post on Musk, another Medium blog was published with a theory that Musk invented Bitcoin for future use on Mars. As radical as this may sound, The point around PayPal in this article was relevant. Musk had already revolutionized digital currency with his founding role in PayPal, which he sold to eBay in 2002. The author claims Musk is under a non compete, non compete agreement, that is, from this deal, leaving him to secrecy about his role in Bitcoin. I guess confining him to if you were to want to be involved, have to keep that a secret. Or else risk being in violation of that non-compete. Gupta's article cites other clues that support his theory, including Musk's interest in surviving global problems, his unusual silence on the topic of cryptocurrencies, and the fact that, quote, Elon has said publicly he doesn't own any Bitcoin, which is consistent with a, quote, good Satoshi who deleted his private keys. This means... Satoshi's 1 million coins, in parentheses, they today would be valued at about $8 billion as of the time of that article just a couple of days ago. Satoshi's 1 million coins are gone for good. And of course, with a net worth of $19.7 billion, Elon Musk is one of the few people who actually wouldn't need that money. Cool article. The links to the source article are embedded within the slashdot article. The slashdot article link is, of course, included in our show notes. All right, that one was fun. Now let's talk about that next one, which was referenced briefly in that article. This is the third the third article. this is on medium.com found this um, it says here why Elon Musk invented Bitcoin with a question mark. Elon Musk has already done so much PayPal, SpaceX, Tesla, Hyperloop the boring factory Of course he's referring to the mega factory here. who's our author John Kay November 10th, he wrote this. The first argument to prove John Kay's point. He's already done so much. Why not add a small line to his curriculum? The second argument is... He is the founder of PayPal. In 0 to 1, Peter Thiel stated that everyone in PayPal... Was working to provide an alternative to the dollar, and they failed actually. It was good business though. They all became very rich. Yet the dollar is still alive, and PayPal is closer to making some dollars, 88 billions actually, in parentheses, than replacing it. And Elon is not the guy who likes to fail, though you can hardly characterize that as failure, I suppose, unless you really just hate those dollars. (laughs) Uh, The third argument is this. His life goal is, quote, making mankind a multi-planetary species. And very notably, bringing people to Mars. Yet, there is an issue with that. Let's assume I live on Mars. What property should have a currency on Mars? So, he goes on to a little bulleted list here. It starts with the heading, Trust. Let's say I work on Mars. Will I risk having all my earnings put at risk of an incident? Asteroid, for example, on a planet with no atmosphere. If I work several years on Mars, I want to have the opportunity to come back to Earth with the money of my hard work. In a multipolar planet Earth, U.S., China, Europe, Africa... Because he means political polls. It makes no sense to put your money in the currency of a single state, even the U.S. He, he reveals that he's European or somewhere from other than America here, where in parentheses he says, Come on! They elected Donald Trump. Touche, John K. I can't argue with you there. Bitcoin solves that. Next bullet point heading. Immediate. While I'm on Mars... I don't want to wait for my credit card service to check if there's enough money in my account on Earth. There is a natural latency due to the distance of space. Am I ready to wait five minutes at the bakery? Just because it's far away from the central repository? Bitcoin solves that because every Bitcoin on Mars can be checked towards the local blockchain despite any latency on Earth. Or with Earth. Next point. Sure. Maybe surety? Sure, he says here. I need to trust the money I own will keep its worth and will not lose value over time or will even appreciate. Here again, Bitcoin solves that. Final bullet point. Valuable on multiple planets slash asteroids, including Earth. I should be able to travel back to any country on Earth and have the money accepted or go to a moon on Jupiter and have my money accepted. Bitcoin solves that. So he summarizes, or concludes I should say, that's why Elon Musk invented bitcoins. He needed a currency the first people to go to Mars would trust and use. A currency that's practical, that's earning value over time, which can be more trusted than gold. I wonder which of you can recognize true gold. Touché. Yeah. Good point. Could probably be tricked on that one, for sure. In addition to that, it has the benefits of making him the owner of one million bitcoins. Enough to motivate people to go to Mars and finance it. I'm not sure I'm tracking on that. In addition to that, it has the benefits of making him the owner of one million bitcoins. Unless he was the good Satoshi and gave them away, I suppose. Or decommissioned them. Anyway. Alright. So, uh, then the question is, why is he hiding it? Because he sold PayPal to eBay in 2002 and does not have the right to launch a competitor. That's why he kept it a secret. And I have to say, the secrecy of the launch makes it easier for the community to adopt the technology without a leader, an American billionaire, to work on it. Would China have accepted bitcoins had it known it was a Silicon Valley new endeavor? Will Bitcoin survive? Probably. Anyway, its goal should be one of its founder, making Bitcoin a multi-planetary currency. So, you know, I think I just piled, piled two more speculation pieces on top of a speculation piece from last week about cryptocurrency. So, if any of you listening are fellow podcasters and you podcast about crypto. And you would like to work with me behind the scenes to continue to understand crypto better or maybe even collaborate on some content about this. We certainly find it in, in very interesting subject. One that folks are talking about more and more all the time. I can't help it. I find it quite fascinating. I'd like to find a cool cryptocurrency to invest in at some point soon. Wouldn't that be neat? Okay. So that's, uh, there we go. That's our stories about Elon and and crypto. One more little quick baked matter here. We have before we move into, well, yeah, no, actually, transitioning now to baked, oh, yeah, 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 no, 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 no. see, Steve, got your stuff all conflated and confused up here, because I was going to talk to you guys about scary robots and artificial intelligence after that Bitcoin business. So we got to pop back up top here where I left these two links for myself. Um, so, I'll start with The Verge. And, you know, I mean, what do you want? It's The Verge. So, But, I mean, everybody's talking about this stuff. doesn't matter if it's The Verge. Everybody, everywhere on, you know, whether it's YouTube, whether it's, um, you know, science fiction websites, whether it's, uh, you know, you, you even go... Uh, to you know, more really boring, just like TechCrunch CNET, you know, and, and my friends over at Slash. I mean, you find the you know, stuff reporting on this continuously. This I found, uh, you know, I've been tracking the Boston Dynamics scary ass robots for a few years, like most of us have, and just watching them when they send those, you know, put those videos out online. Uh, They started with those, you know, crazy quadrupedal, uh, scary-looking horse dogs uh, and things originally. And, uh, you know, some of them even had, like, uh, motorcycle engines and stuff in them uh, before, you know, they transitioned very quickly, obviously, uh, soon after that to battery-powered setups of different kinds. But, uh, you know couple of weeks ago, here in November, and maybe this has been kicking around. I want to say it's been kicking around for a month or two before that uh, that we've been seeing this robot. But Boston Dynamics has their new Atlas Evolved, kind of their their second generation or third generation Atlas uh, bipedal, uh, you know, humanoid uh, form factor, excuse me, uh, robot. You know, and and that they've shared with the public. Recently. Now, um, disclaimer sort of note uh, any of my friends who have heard me talk about or seen me post on these robots of any kind, uh, you know, it's important for all of us to remember that anything that we see on TV, on YouTube, on the internet, anywhere, uh, technology wise, that's put forward as cutting edge technology is not in fact close to their latest and greatest. It's, you know, we only ever see something that is several generations behind the coolest, craziest, scariest stuff they've got. I, you know, if you don't believe me, I urge you to ask yourself that same question. Recall that you know at any given time while we're playing our xbox ones somebody is developing the new machine somewhere deep inside uh you know uh in this in that case microsoft um whatever you know our this could be our uh mobile phones we're talking about here this could be the next generation you know automobile models or technology um all Industries like this are shrouded in secrecy to begin with, much, much more so, uh, defense contractors to any major, uh, world power, particularly, uh, I would stipulate, uh, American defense contractors to U.S. military and, uh, analog organizations, so, uh, the Verge.com article that I found here has the original video that I saw and which I posted a small segment of in uh, on my Instagram account a week or so back. And this Atlas robot, you know, runs at a reasonable pace, uh, you know, a fast walk kind of pace. It sort of trots, uh, at least as was demonstrated in the videos. It hops ably up and down steps like a crossfit high uh, jumper standing high jumper. Uh it does 180s and uh importantly this thing also did a standing backflip to a clean landing on camera. Um they showed a couple of outtakes of the thing tottering and falling over uh you know trying to stick that uh landing but it you know, was never in question that it wasn't going to do it. Um, So, yeah, uh, that's striking. It's very powerful imagery. I mean, that's Terminator-type behaviors. Um, You know, he's a little bit more like RoboCop-level athleticism, if you recall that, you know, character from... uh, movie sci-fi from a few years back there uh, than, than our, you know, more even more uh, refined Terminator who was covered in, you know, skin lifelike skin and uh, very human appearance uh, for the most part albeit a rather lacking personality in the form of the original Terminator Arnold's character Uh, But this is, you know, this is not far off from there, or at least it shows the way to there. And I need only observe that we also, at the same time, could be talking about reporting on discussing the uh, rapid proliferation of lifelike uh, skin-clad, in some cases, uh, you know, uh, speech bestowed like, uh, what do they call, them? you know, well, sex dolls for lack of a better word, companion dolls, you know, these these things are a step away from you know being uh, iterated with some form of rudimentary, uh, you know, Siri class personal assistant level AI type, you know, entertainment based personality companionship based personality and being shipped out to folks uh you know and then the next ones shipped after that will probably come with you know the basic ability to move around and and navigate your house and you know go in and out the door and you know maybe not everyone will be you know built and marketed as a you know uh, companion robot of that particular ilk but uh, where I'm going with that all is that increasingly realistic-looking humanoid-type robots are probably coming, folks. Uh, you know, scary Terminators aside, the civilian versions of scary Terminator who are detuned and depowered and got a you know a hundred thousand safety features built into them, quote-unquote, whatever that may be. Uh, the the Toyota version that you know you eventually buy, or the Panasonic that you buy, or the you know um, <laughs> could be a Vizio you know at this point robot uh, that gets sold to your to your house as a uh, you know family companion robot and you know nanny to the kids, dog walker you know uh, might very well look darn near human from day one, and that you know product might not be more than, what, 10 years away at most, you know, from shipping all over the world right now? I mean, who, who, you mean to tell me somebody somewhere isn't right now trying to turn their robot factory into the first robot factory that ships a whole bunch of, you know, Robin Williams, Bicentennial Man robots to people's houses? I mean, I'm, I'm seeing the weird Kickstarters and Indiegogos for little derpy, Fucking, you know, wheeled R2D2s, you know, glorified Roombas all over the place. Some of them are pretty nifty, actually. Um, anyway, rant, rant, rant. Don't even read the article, Steve. All right, so, uh, you know, this guy basically is talking about, so, uh, who's the author here? Paul Miller, uh, future Paul. This is Circuit Breaker on TheVerge.com. Um, this was November 17th, anyway. Uh, you know he's he's marveling much like I am. Uh, something that often bothers me about sci-fi is the loner inventor trope: a guy in a garage builds a robot or AI, or frequently both, that are somehow decades beyond the technology of his day, and all the wild implications of his vast technological leap are the fuel for the next two and a half hours of popcorn entertainment. But the latest visio, video, excuse me, from Boston Dynamics is the closest equivalent I've ever witnessed IRL. Sure, it's the achievement of an entire company, and they're doing it on YouTube for everyone to see, not in a basement, but a backflip. He goes on, It's hard to even appreciate how hard this is for robots to do, because it's hard to appreciate how difficult walking still is for humanoids. I wrote a whole piece about the problem of building walking robots back in 2011. It wasn't pretty back then, and it's still a challenge for most full-size humanoids. It's a barely believable jump forward for the the state-of-the-art. It's astonishing. He's referring to the backflip again. It's a moon landing, basically, except instead of all the people of Earth gathering around YouTube televisions, around tube televisions to witness it, it just popped up on our social feeds yesterday afternoon without warning. Let's get a bit of historical context. Eleven years ago, we were laughing as Honda's ASIMO robot fell off a set of stairs. They have the embedded link to that video. I did watch it. That was a pathetic fail, and I do remember when it occurred at the time. Uh, that he goes on to show a whole bunch of seemingly more... Uh, would be advanced robots in 2015 and another video compilation of just like super fails of all of them just spazzing out in the most hilarious ways just trying to navigate flat ground um, you know as recently as 2015 so it continues yeah we were challenging humanoid robots with much more complicated dynamic and demanding tasks than a staged descent of a perfectly level set of shallow steps but if you asked me how long until these robots are doing backflips? In 2015, after watching a weekend uh, or after a weekend of watching DARPA class robot pratfalls and fails, I would have frowned and said something like, "Ugh. Would we have to develop some new form of organic mechanisms more akin to the human body to get the power to weight ratio just right?" Would we have to rebuild software engineering from scratch to combine real-time responsiveness with machine learning complexity? Would we end up in some economic recession or war that would require the companies and institutions investing in humanoid robotics to stop wasting money and just ship something boring and useful? I guess I could have said, maybe a decade. We have to figure out jumping first but also running and walking. But a decade in the technology world really means I literally have no idea. And I guess I would have been right about one thing. I had no idea. In 2016, not too long after the DARPA challenge, where many of the robots in the competition were based on Boston Dynamics' best-in-class Atlas humanoid, Boston Dynamics hit us with a new YouTube video, Atlas, The Next Generation. The video showcased a much more, a much lighter and more agile version of the robot, opening a door, walking through snow, picking up boxes, getting hit with a hockey stick for no reason. Watch the video if you haven't. If you haven't seen the video yet and you're listening to this show, I'm stunned. You've probably been... Maybe you just got out of jail or something. If so, welcome back. We're glad to have you back. Uh, this is one of many videos that you'll want to catch up on um, but uh, and you know, if you did just get out of jail, you can leave this for a while. There's probably other shit you got to do too so um, so it you know it just showed huge you know improvements over the previous robot, this new robot that was showcased in this video. So, uh, earlier this year, they did show the same company, Boston Dynamics, they showed this scary little robot, uh, they called it Handle. It's not little, it's like, you know, five, six feet tall, too. And it had like a four-foot vertical jump. It was on wheels. It was like a Segway-type robot. Um, it was a wheeled robot. He, he says here, uh, while impressive, wheels are vastly simpler than bipedal locomotion, What Handel proved is that Boston Dynamics could blast enough power through its hydraulics to generate the necessary force for liftoff. So all we needed was a few years of software improvements to get the balancing algorithm just right, and we could finally have jumping robots. So this was, you know, just earlier this year. And again, they figured that would take years of software development to get from that to a jumping, running around, parkouring robot. Well, yesterday, Atlas jumped on video. It leaped from box to box like a gazelle. It did a 180. And it did a backflip. A humanoid, strong enough to jump like that, is capable of any typical human locomotion. Stairs, curbs, uneven ground, accidental jostling, sitting down, standing up, Alright, get it. You know, getting in and out of cars, subway lurches, we get it. You know, it could climb a ladder, it could crawl in a window, it could uh, jump in and out of a car, it could uh, climb a fence, it could, you know, uh, hang on to a rope, it could do a bunch of different shit that, you know, we have needed these things to do or wanted these things to do for a long time, but they have been abysmal at. Um, You know, that's the main thing. They haven't had agility, useful agility until now, but this thing is demonstrating useful agility and coordination, okay, and with no real major AI right now, this is all, you know, they're not, I mean, they're not telling us what's in the thing's brain, what's in the thing's head, so let me actually stop short of that. Anyway, all right, so, he says here, a backflip is a marvel of mechanical engineering and software control, it's a statement of power and poise. It's bonkers. I'm certain there's still much more to do on the software side. Performing powerful jumps in a controlled, measured environment is easier than doing dynamic, improvisational parkour. And then humanoids still have to be taught how to do something useful with their newfound physical capabilities. I'm betting they already have a few ideas on what qualifies as useful, but... Uh also, other companies will have to catch up with Boston Dynamics. Just because this is possible doesn't mean it's easy. We're still a ways away from having backflipping robots as next-door neighbors. But I think we're in a new robotic age now. There was a time before Atlas could do backflips, back when robots were for factories, bomb disposal, vacuuming, and the occasional gimmick. And none of the useful ones were humanoids. Now, we're living in an era where humanoid robots are apparently as agile as we are. So what will they be used for? It's time to get out the popcorn. I don't know if we have time for popcorn, you guys. <laughs> uh, So cool article. He's got all the links to the videos from Boston Dynamics in there. I would point out, as I already sort of observed there, uh, that, you know, so Boston Dynamics is probably well, well ahead of either of these robots that we just saw, whether the wheeled one or our more Terminator-y looking version. If you think that Honda has stopped development on Asimo, if you think that any of the many other DARPA competitors who flopped around on the ground in that fail video, if you think they all packed up and quit just because Boston Dynamics has theirs somewhat working now, uh, you know, that's, I would say, you know, kind of ridiculous. I'm, I'm sure that most of them are, in fact, making progress by leaps and bounds and probably magically had some breakthroughs after Boston Dynamics had their own um, varying levels. These things are coming. They're coming for the military. They're coming for, in some form, mass produced uh, applications out in industry and the world, potentially even private applications in our homes. Like I already mentioned, the nanny use case will be one of the first ones they push for, I would imagine. and, I mean, I, you know, I probably spent most of my life up to this point in time saying I totally welcome and look forward to a, you know, Asimov-style Three Laws of Robotics kind of, um, you know, governed, you know, semi-sentient to sentient, you know, C-3PO of our own. You know, everybody would love one. Um, but, you know, are these the very... Machines that are going to build the machines that are the ones that don't just do what they're told and do what they're supposed to do and do what they were created to do but, you know, somehow, you know, manage to transcend, somehow manage to, you know, uh, either through sheer mimicry, uh, you know, and by dint of that, Itself convincing us of their sentience or through an artificial intelligence framework that allows them, you know, from day one, some level of cognition, cog- consciousness uh, that is undeniable and uh, as such uh, makes them, you know, fundamentally, virtually people in some form in a form that they would, no doubt, assert. Uh, you know, what does that world look like? How does that world not turn Terminator-y, skynet you know, just really scary really quickly? I'm not sure. Um, I feel like we haven't really Demonstrated at all as you know, sort of technological culture uh, globally that we even have a vision for what working with robots side by side every day, humanoid robots really is going to look like. Um, You know, are they going to become our you know meter maids next? Um, That's a terrible term. parking enforcement uh, officers next. Um, You know, census takers, meter readers. I don't know. They're already answering phones for us. Talking to us. Convincing bots. I mean, you know, we've most of us have probably had an interaction with a chat bot somewhere along the lines on a website that's helped us, you know, get through a, a big green egg purchase or some fucking, you know, power drill that you needed or who knows what else. And because, I mean, these things are on like Home Depot's websites and stuff like that. I don't really think somebody's sitting on the other end of uh, the computer screen and sees that the website's being pinged by some ISP in Washington and, and you know, initiates and, and has some person sit up in their seat and initiate a conversation with you. Uh, you know, that's that's not a person anymore already right now. Those are bots, and you know, a lot of us sometimes we know, and most of the times we know, and a lot of times we maybe don't even know because we're not thinking about it or even worrying about. Oh, somebody, oh, here's a here's a sales agent right now. They want to help me sell me this insurance, or whatever it might be you have a perfectly serviceable interaction with that what amounts to a super limited narrow focused AI but they get you through politely with a couple of pleasantries thrown in um, and, and a lot of them absorb little funny curveballs you might throw at them by accident in the course of you know your derpitude and interacting with them anyway um, or at least appear to so anyway I got one more article on that and that's an NPR article um and so Elon Musk our friend Elon I'm talking about him a lot this episode uh you know has warned about AI and our you know potential inability to control a coming you know sentient AI of some kind uh as as a race you know as people so it says here, Musk's warning, Sparks' call for regulating artificial intelligence, and this is in a in all tech considered under policy. This is written by Dave Blanchard. Came out way back in July. Okay, so, um, so these are yeah. So this these are some warnings that some of you have heard already about uh, from Musk. Um, you know, he warns that artificial intelligence is quote a fundamental existential risk for human civilization. Um, Musk, of course, the Tesla and SpaceX CEO. He's made remarks uh, at, uh, at that time, the National Governors Association meeting. So National Governors of United States, uh, you know, states uh, meeting in Rhode Island. How'd you fit all the governors in Rhode Island at the same time? Rhode Island's almost as small as Delaware. Uh, he's long warned of the threats he believes artificial intelligence will pose from automation to apocalypse. Yeah, so the, his automation threat is, you know, that it'll put everybody out of work and that, you know, capitalism isn't ready to move to things like universal basic income and stuff like that. Um, and then and then from, from automation to apocalypse. He, he literally says that, you know, the AI could just decide to evolve right past us all and, you know, turn us into resources for it uh, you know or you know bringing about some crazy matrix like disastrous scenario uh, you know or simply just you know transcending us and leaving us behind entirely Um, others though Bill Gates Stephen Hawking and others have similarly sounded warnings over AI so um, of yeah, so let's see here. Of all the things I heard over this weekend. Yeah, uh... You know, one uh, H- Hickenlooper, I think he's a Colorado uh, governor, says, of all the things I heard over this weekend with the National Gover- Governors Association, that was the one I've spent more time thinking about. Well, that makes one of you, I'm sure. Because I bet the rest of those governors... I don't know, most of them were probably... probably lost on them, but... Uh, anyway... yep AI robots they're dangerous they're real I'm not sitting here talking about them to fearmonger I think they're super fascinating I think you know we're gonna see what happens one way or the other so I, I wouldn't characterize myself as being afraid of it I'm just talking about it because yeah dudes robots come on shit's amazing uh we'll see if they kill us all or not I hope not be nice if they didn't wouldn't it It would be nice (laughs) alright so what else we got oh yeah alright I got a cool story for you guys and it has to do with my good friend cannabis open up this other cannabis cigarette I've got here. And this one was neat. I rolled it with a cool glass tip. I got this glass tip at Clutch the other day. And it's like a raw glass tip. I didn't pay for like $30 crazy expensive ones. I think this one was only like $7. Um, But it's a cool little crutch for your doobies when you roll them. And instead of using like a paper crutch, you use glass. So it's really neat. Um, Alright, we we are going to do that. We are going to talk about Did Cannabis Come From Space? We're going to do it in like two seconds though. Because I'm going to cue up some more music for us again. So, sit tight. Be right back. You won't even know I was gone. And we'll smoke. And we'll talk about Cannabis Coming From Space. What's up, everybody? All right. We're back. I got some snacks in me. I needed them. working on this all day, you guys. Uh, also, right about now, feeling that feeling when you realize you didn't have your mixer plugged in to the computer time. So, sorry, you get none of that music that I've been listening to, but uh, we're back with a little bit of uh, Auntie Luodi and their wonderful background sounds for a story that we're going to jump into next at just about 4.22 p.m., which is true stoners know is the perfect catch-up time for those who missed 4.20 it's 4.20. Two minutes later, it's 4.22. All right, so let's see here. Found a cool story, and I've heard this myth before. Uh, about cannabis and its origins. It says here at hazed, hazed. Did marijuana come from outer space? Let's find out. Taking its place among conspiracies like Bigfoot is an alien, giants built the pyramids, and the moon is a man-made object. The theory that one of the world's most magical plants came from outer space has grown in popularity in recent years as with most convergence points between mysticism and the extraterrestrial the theories point back to the Dogon tribe of Africa and their special connection with the Sirius star cluster the most publicized concept explains that the Greek historian Herodotus visited visited the Dogon tribe in West Africa sometime around 300 B.C., while they were having a year-long 420 celebration in honor of their favorite plant. Legend has it that party only was held like once every 50 years. When Herodotus went to count his lucky stars for the perfect timing, he found that they were all in the Sirius star system. What he refers to there, he goes on to say, the Dogon explained to their new friend that the, quote, two-dog plant, cannabis, was brought to them from the two-dog star, Sirius, by a Namo goddess, Namo were amphibious, reptoid extraterrestrials that had a friendly relationship with the Dogon tribe. Today, the the Dogon hold crocodiles in reverence, honoring them as descendants of their cosmic guides and explaining to visitors that the crocodiles in their lakes came from the sky. So... The story actually grounds us a little bit here and sort of goes on to right away debunk it. He says, The story first begins to unravel with claims that the word cannabis is comprised of the words kana, for dog, and bis, too, in Greek. However, ancient Sumerian languages use the word kanubai Kanubi, Kanubi, K-A-N-U-B-I. Translating to Cane of Two. Ancient Hebrew language agrees with translations indicating the word means cane or reed. It can be determined that the two portion of the word may refer to the sexes. The sex of the marijuana plant can be determined visibly, making one of very few plants on Earth with such a distinction. Most plants require DNA analysis to determine sex. This is true. The second pothole in the theory comes with the claim of Herodotus visiting in 300 BC, when scriptures indicate that he actually died in 425 BC. Now, perhaps some dates were incorrect, but it is difficult to rebound from such evidence. Sure. But I mean, I guess if dates were wrong, dates were wrong, right? But we don't know if they were. We're not saying that. All right. So, the theory, he continues, goes beyond just this isolated story. Humans are born with THC receptors in our brains. This leads into another complex, but even more popular conspiracy theory, that humans were hyper-evolved through DNA manipulation performed by extraterrestrials. Obviously, this isn't just jumping to conclusions, though, it's lunging for them. I would have to agree with our author here. Uh... It's still interesting to think that if humans are genetically designed creations of an extraterrestrial race, the THC receptors, which we're born with, may have been specifically placed there to interact with cannabis. An alien plant. Whoa, that's ominous, you guys. It's cannabis controlling our brains, man. I mean, a few people can make some convincing arguments for that, but let's not go there. Um... So... You know, he goes on to talk a little bit more about the panspermia theory and how, you know, we've found biological particles that, you know, clearly uh, appear to have every capability of surviving intact through, you know, the vacuum of space and traveling through space. Um... You know, we've we've grown plants up in the space station in the International Space Station. There's a myth about space station weed that they allude to here that I've also heard of before. Um, that I'd love to cover in a future show, so we'll we'll save it. Uh, so the Dogon tribe are really interesting, and this article barely scratches the surface on them. They had apparently very deep and penetrating awareness of at least large sections of the uh, visible night sky of their time. Uh, they had information and uh, seeming star charts that they referred to as celestial charts um, that uh, mapped the, the Sirius star system that um, they claim the cannabis to have come from along with their, many of their gods from their mythologies. Uh, And I think to hear them tell it the human origin uh, by dint of the uh, reptoid aliens who elevated us from animal status. So uh, really fun, really interesting uh, people and tribe and knowledge that they had that was all more or less, at least astronomically, uh, shown to be more or less... Spot on. Uh, And these were folks who were demonstrating this knowledge openly and being recorded for it uh, at a time when, you know, like advanced telescopes of any kind, telescopes didn't exist, period, as a thing. That wasn't a thing yet when these dudes in the, you know, 300 B.C. to 400 B.C. time frame... We're demonstrating this knowledge of, of our local space environs. So yeah. Uh, SmokeJedi.com, one of several places where I found this. You can find cool little rundowns on the Did Cannabis Come From Space theory on YouTube and probably on a few other places like bid.me and others uh, uh, and uh, Vimeo. Uh, you know, go out there and search them. Uh, It's a really fun story. There's an even more fun story that's um, based on a a cool book that has to do with um, the psilocybin mushroom uh, and a connection to uh, deep uh, mythologies and religious uh, uh, iconography and and, uh, mythology, another matter, however, for another day all really fun stuff. We got we got time for it though. So <clears throat> Yeah. Check that article out. It'll be in the show notes. And Yeah, so I think what we're going to do today, everybody, is I think we're able to go over an hour. I'm recording this file as one big file. And we went over You know, just about five minutes ago, as a matter of fact. This better work, frankly. (laughs) I might have to edit it down. Uh, It'll probably work. Uh, But um, we've got a little information about net neutrality that I want to talk about here next. So um, just one quick second. Alright, so yeah, what I wanted to do was take the last few minutes, talk about a topic that, you know, we all probably think we know something about, and we may know something about it, but be a little bit confused about it. It's certainly being talked about all the time right now, and that is net neutrality. And uh, what we're up against, everybody, is in just a couple of weeks here, on December 14th, um, the... Senate is going to vote on a amendment to repeal a bunch of protections that were put in place um, in 2015, uh, establishing what we understand today as net neutrality, okay? And to summarize what that is uh, in a nutshell, you know, you trust that when you sit down to your computer at home... That you know, not only are like let's set let's actually set aside the prices for one second and just simply point out the fact that whatever you're paying for your internet prices, because there is some variance there. Um, when you sit down at whether it's Google.com or any web search engine, Wolfram Alpha, if you're super nerdy and uh, you know want to be techie like me, um, uh, you know whatever you're using to parse your news, um, uh, whether and then. Um, that, that you have access to those websites, that those websites are functioning properly, that there's no interference or slowdown of, for example, hosted video content on those platforms. Uh, likewise, when you look at platforms uh, that exist that have um, other major content uh, that's being provided, like a Netflix, a Hulu, uh, other um competitors to traditional television stations and cable news stations uh, that we have access to those services and that they work as expected and as advertised and as those uh, service providers expected they would be able to provide under the, you know, the the uh, understanding that we have fair and neutral access to the infrastructure that is the internet, the, you know, um Actual broadband, the throughput, the capability of moving at the same speed as everyone else—these uh, things are were fought for for a reason. We have numerous precedents that have been, uh, you know, established that can be pointed to. Uh, Comcast being one offender, AT&T being another offender, um, Verizon being yet another offender. Uh, all of whom have, uh, you know, employed deceptive practices in the past. In particular, in most of those cases that I just mentioned, to in, in some cases block, but in many cases simply slow down the performance of. Uh, those of us who remember the early Netflix streaming days definitely remember some shockingly bad video quality. And that wasn't all your normal internet Uh, Wi-Fi, you know, router in your house and what level of service you were paying for, you know, from from Comcast, you guys, that was, you know, definitely uh, being manipulated on the back end by some of these, uh, the uh, telecoms and the uh, broadband providers around the country. Uh, They didn't want the competition. They didn't know how to deal with them at first. And they tried everything they could to get these companies to perform less well, uh, look bad, potentially go out of business. At the same time that they were charging all of us, you know, in many cases, a little bit more here and a little bit more there for, quote-unquote, upgraded Internet plans that would help resolve the issue because we just didn't, you know, we were using too much data. Things like that. So, um that you know we expect the internet to be neutral when we get on it we expect to have reasonably the same access as anybody else anywhere else to uh the services that exist to the websites and domains and access no one should have control over what we view no one should have control over what we uh post uh, at least that has been the default state for the most part of you know the internet the free internet as we uh understand it today okay and that's me talking there. That's my synopsis of what net neutrality means. The uh, the amendment or the rules that were put in place <clears throat> to protect net neutrality, okay, um, in 2015 under the Obama administration, uh, I think are called like the Blumenauer Rohrbacher Agreement, <clears throat> okay? Um, and that, that, uh, agreement basically was in follow-on to an earlier memo from, uh, uh, James Cole, I think it was James Cole here, and we're gonna see, we're gonna jump into this article and see what's what with it, um, I found this on, um, (laughs) this is called Free Press, so this is savetheinternet.com, okay, I, I don't know who these guys are, this is interesting, you know, This particular article here. Well, we'll see what kind of slant it's got. You know, save the internet. dot com sounds like you know they're definitely, you know, whoever free press is here. It's definitely, you know, on one side of this, ostensibly our side. <clears throat> All right, so here they they talk about it. Net neutrality is the basic principle that prohibits Internet service providers like AT&T, Comcast, and Verizon from speeding up, slowing down, or blocking any content, applications, or websites you want to use. Net neutrality is the way that the Internet has always worked. In 2015, millions of activists pressured the Federal Communications Commission to adopt historic net neutrality rules to keep the Internet free and open, Allowing you to share and access information of your choosing without interference. Okay, so yeah, I, I like I like where they started with this. I read this whole page. I know where they're going with this because they're definitely this is a uh, a political advocacy organization. You know, definitely that's been organized to fight against this uh, repeal. They you know call out. Um, Ajit Pai by name here, the you know Trump's new FCC chairman. Uh, you know he wants to destroy net neutrality. In May, the FCC voted to let Pai's internet killing plan move forward. By the end of the summer, the agency was flooded with more than 20 million comments. The vast majority of people commenting urged the FCC to preserve the existing net neutrality rules. Now, I found some interesting stories out there. Some of you may have seen them. Um, That includes stories of uh, the FCC suppressing a lot of people's comments, uh, claiming that they didn't even want to read them unless they um, posited some sort of uh, persuasive legal argument uh, as to why they wouldn't want uh, them to repeal net neutrality. I also uh, read a story, which I'm uh, going to put in the show notes here, that indicates that uh, possibly the FCC uh, spammed and created a bunch of bullshit Uh, fake comments that were pro-repeal, okay? Uh, (coughs) Excuse me. So, this is an interesting topic. They're really talking about something that may affect somebody like, so, for example, me, a podcaster. Right now, as, as amazing as it is, to understand this, I am able to, with, you know, a minimum level of technical capability and knowledge, obviously, uh, and very modest resources, you know, not much more than the average person is paying for their internet service anyway in their house, and since we're like an un- Plugged on wired house, and I don't have tons of uh, cable channels as well. Even after you throw back in web hosting and podcast hosting and whatever else, I've little I've invested in gear for this show. You know, I'm spending less on on this than most people are on their sports package. Uh, you know, for their cable with their cable provider. Um. And so, you know, what's what's cool about that is I reach. You know dozens of people an episode at this point but i'm out there on the same platform that you know absolute giants are on and i do have a reasonable chance of you know over time being exposed to more and more people to the point that eventually you know a a content creator like myself whether i am able to do this for years personally or not um you know but content creators just like me all the time right now are are still transitioning from little known personal projects to successful you know amazing uh you know big shows uh you know it's uh, people have an opportunity to connect with the world right now in a pretty egalitarian way and i could see under certain circumstances that are posited by articles like this and this one gets a little bit preachy and and activisty and I'm not going to read it um as I look at it closer I'll include it in the in the show notes for you but um yeah you know when I when I first started considering whether we should talk about it uh on here I was like well does it even affect me and I kind of think you know It could affect all of us, podcasters and, you know, um, YouTube, uh, you know, content creators and any other kind of vlogger or blogger that's out there that right now is on a semi-equal playing field to just about everybody else. That could change, you know, these... These guys that I referenced earlier, that Comcast, AT&T, Verizon, etc., they all have fucked with competition consistently. And so, you know, and they've been caught at it time and again. I mean, I've gotten money from class action lawsuits from AT&T for throttling our data on our unlimited data plan. You know, it was pennies on the dollar, of course, like, like it always is, right? Um, when you ever, when, even when they get caught, you know, they still got us, they still fleeced us. They still walk away with everything. Um, whatever they give us is a, is a pathetic, you know, little, uh, (laughs) you know, token. It's almost a little fuck you, even when they lose in court after how many years, you know, and how many people, you know, have to cry out, cry foul to ever get there. Uh, You know, so I worry about that stuff, you know, and that's and that's probably what a lot of folks are worried about with net neutrality. Right. Um, So, you know, they they on this story are basically laying out a lot of the points that I just made that these providers without some sort of regulation in place to make sure that the Internet remains neutral to the user on the end on the on the front end, you and I, um, that, you know, we need the, the rules that are in place now. Um, at, at a minimum, you know, if not better. But I also saw a story, and here's where I'll get yelled at, about this, and I saw this on a... Uh, Well, I listened to and watched uh, James Corbett, who's a titan of alternative news, and I don't know. I don't know. Maybe this guy's a big alt-right wing nut as far as you're concerned. I don't think he's that, though. The fucker lives in Japan, though, so I don't know. That's a little bit interesting and different. But what he is is calm, cool, and collected, and pretty cogent, and he's prolific. He's got hundreds of episodes, and it's all on you know, really interesting geopolitical, uh, weirdness of all sorts. And, you know, definitely he's in our, you know, alternative news conspiracy realm, but he comes across on like, he's got this like dry broadcaster, you know, kind of approach to it. And he's pretty, like I say, pretty prolific and pretty seemingly knowledgeable. And, and I find him interesting. Uh, anyway, uh, his, like, Regular guest that he likes a lot uh, is this dude Jeffrey Tucker and he's from another site called fee.org and it's uh, FEE.org Foundation for Economic Education Uh, you know and I don't know you know much about the dude other than the few times I've seen him on, on Corbett Report but he's another you know Middle-aged talking head dude, not a lot different than me, but he's probably a lot more educated than me. He seems pretty, sh- pretty sharp, but he's got he's got an article here with a bit of a counterpoint. I'm gonna read it real quick to you guys, and then we'll let you go because it's been a long one. But <clears throat> we'll almost let you go. You see, we'll see. All right. He says goodbye net neutrality, hello competition. You know, I know. We'll see. We'll see. Could be a libertarian wingnut, but... At long last, with the end of net neutrality, competition could soon come to the industry that delivers internet services to you. You might be able to pick among a range of packages. Some minimalist and some maximalist, depending on how you use the service. Here we go. There we go. Or you could choose a package that charges based only on what you consume rather than sharing fees with everyone else. Internet socialism is dead. Long live market forces. With market-based pricing finally permitted, we could see new entrants to the industry because it might make economic sense for the first time to innovate. The growing competition will lead, over the long run, to innovation and falling prices. Consumers will find themselves in the driver's seat rather than crawling and begging for service and paying whatever the provider demands. Ajit Pai, Trump's new chairman of the FCC, is exactly right. Quote, under my proposal, the federal government will stop micromanaging the Internet. Instead, the FCC would simply require internet service providers to be transparent about their practices so that consumers can buy service plans that's best for them. So, they claim here in this story, Jeffrey Tucker does, that the old rules amounted to being a Fed, Federal Reserve, he's saying, for the communications industries, I tend to think that sounds pretty ominous and nefarious myself. Um, So, what does he mean? He says here, the old rules pushed by the Obama administration had locked down the industry with regulations that only helped incumbent service providers and major content delivery services. They called it a triumph of, quote, free expression and democratic principles. It was anything but. It was actually a power grab. It created an internet communication cartel, not unlike the way the banking system works under the Federal Reserve. Net neutrality had the backing of all the top names in content delivery, from Google to Yahoo to Netflix to Amazon. It had the quiet support of the leading internet service providers, Comcast and Verizon. Both companies are on record in support of the principle, repeatedly and consistently, while opposing only Title II, which would make them a public utility, a classic have-your-cake-and-eat-it position. The opposition, in contrast, has been represented by small players in the industry, hardware providers like Cisco, free-market think tanks, and disinterested professors and a small group of writers and pundits who know something about freedom and free market economics. The public at large should have been rising up in opposition. But people were largely ignorant of what was going on with net neutrality. Consumers imagined that they could get censorship-free access and low prices. That's not what happened. Here's what's really going on with net neutrality. The incumbent rulers of the world's most exciting technology decided to lock down the prevailing market conditions to protect themselves against rising upstarts in a fast-changing market. The imposition of a rule against throttling content or using the market price system to allocate bandwidth resources protects against innovations that would disrupt the status quo. So... You know, let's see here. I want to I not get too bogged down. He says here next, What was sold as economic fairness and a wonderful favor to consumers was actually a sop to industrial giants who were seeking untrammeled access to your wallet and an end to competitive threats to market power. Let's grasp the position of large content providers. Here we see the obvious special interests at work. Netflix, Amazon, and the rest don't want ISPs to charge either them or their consumers for their high-bandwidth content. Agree? They would rather the ISPs themselves absorb the higher costs of such provision. It's very clear how getting the government to make price discrimination illegal is in their interest. It means no threats to their business model. By analogy, let's imagine that a retail furniture company were in a position to offload all their shipping costs to the trucking industry. By government decree, the truckers were not permitted to charge any more or less whether they were shipping one chair or a whole house full of furniture. Would the furniture sellers favor such a deal? Absolutely. They could call this furniture neutrality and fob it off on the public as preventing control of furniture by the shipping industry. Okay, so that's a pretty facile argument, in my opinion, for something that's obviously not a direct analogy. Uh, So, you know, he's got some interesting points that he does bring up, nevertheless, in the course of this story, which is a few more paragraphs long. Uh, It definitely strikes me as a, um, you know, a bit of a libertarian argument bent uh look at this uh segment in industry and um, you know he claims here neutrality you know was deceptive more or less A stifling competition you know putting government you know in charge of you know who can even enter the market um you know subsidizing the biggest and making it hard for the new you know would be to compete you know that's why everybody who's come after you know T-Mobile and Sprint and Verizon you know has you know barely made it off the ground I think you know T-Mobile and Verizon were like the last of them you know you get like crickets and everybody after that and they're all you know also rands right in the mobile so yeah that's yeah that's net neutrality that's that's two sides of the story. this guy thinks that we should uh say f net neutrality and and go full chaos mode I'm not sure i agree um but it's got a good good write up on it there at fee dot org links in the show notes and uh yeah it's a controversial topic so feel free to weigh in comment I don't know Instagram or on the there's a couple different of the apps that allow you to comment in the app on the episode that you're listening to Uh, I realize I have a couple of Google Play listeners that I didn't know I had before so uh, thank you Ryan uh, for listening my good buddy and uh, tattoo artist Ryan Weebush, who's a a talented tattoo artist down in uh, Georgetown area at ArtCore Tattoo uh, let me know today while I was working on the episode that he was listening and doing some cooking listening to us in the background. So, hell yeah. Love it. Um, and I will check out Google Play a little bit more myself, make sure I don't have other friends listening there. Um, yeah, I want to wrap up by letting you know that we have two weeks left to comment to the FCC about our uh, desire to protect Internet neutrality. And uh, the protections that are currently in place from the, I think it's Blumenauer-Roarbacker agreement uh, memo. (laughs) Never mind that. Check out, John Oliver made this much easier for us. John Oliver from the um, TV show, I think he's the Daily Show these days. um, He made this vastly less inconvenient because the labyrinthine government website... um, That you have to navigate to get to where you want to comment about uh, net neutrality to the FCC before the comment period ends uh, is a mess. And so he created a URL called GoFCCYourself.com. Again, I've added that link to the show notes, but you can literally Google that one. Go FCCyourself.com. And this will drill you down like seven pages in to their website and get you exactly to the page you need to be on to comment about net neutrality. Um, And I've already done so and uh, left a comment on the issue expressing my uh, support for continuing protections and not repealing protections on net neutrality. And I think right now that I, I would tend to recommend to everybody else who has the time and inclination that they may want to do the same uh, before we see this uh, potentially change our internet significantly and very soon. All right. Um, Well, tipping in at about 90 minutes right now, and I think my new Libsyn uh, hosting bandwidth will allow me to post this all as one big fat episode, so I hope that's the case. I'm really excited about episode 20. I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do for episode 19 between that and uh, this right now. Um, But episode 20 is going to be a doozy. I'm really looking forward to doing it for you guys. And I still can't spill what it's going to be about. Um, I do want to... uh, sign off and on my way off, uh, let you know that also in the show notes today, you'll find a couple of amazing podcasts, um, Martyr Made podcast, uh, an amazing history podcast that I've been listening to quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and uh, he started out in uh, ancient Jerusalem uh, in particular uh, at the beginning of his you know history arc on his show. Um, I found out about him from another couple of podcasts that I like a lot. I think I heard him mentioned by the Eastern border, but, um, he is great. Um, Martyr Maid, check them out. Uh, check out Factions of Freedom podcast as well. Um, I think this dude might be from like tomorrow or the next day. I'm not sure, but he's like a day or two ahead of everybody else, uh, as far as I'm concerned on most of the topics that I love to talk about and delve into. And he's really sharp and and goes deep on his topics. He's got a lot of content out there as well. And forgive me, I don't remember either of these gentlemen's first names right now. Um, but Factions of Freedom is a great podcast if you're really interested in really, you know, putting on your boots and going out there and marching down some crazy rabbit holes. Uh, this guy's got you covered. Uh one last shout out, uh, my friend uh, DJ Quad, uh, aka the Family Quad, on Instagram. Uh, love you, bro. Love your web comics and uh, love your music as well. Uh, looking forward to continuing to see everything that you do and develop as an artist. Um, and uh, you know we have fun on Instagram all the time. Uh, follow DJ Quad to uh, check out uh, his web comic, The Augmented Life. Uh, All right. I'm going to let you get back to your day. I'm going to try to edit this real quick. Uh, I plugged the mic in, and now all my volume for this last segment is way lower than everything else. Um, And uh, so I'll work on that. Uh, As this finishes yeah i'm not really at 93 minutes for you right now on you know on your timeline because you're about to hear the outro which is a few minutes of me walking around the neighborhood with my dog flint being a weirdo and talking about podcasting like a weirdo so um enjoy that you could just hit stop right now if you wanted to also uh and if you're gonna do that i guess the last thing i'll tell you now if i haven't already till i see you again Remember, smoke indica, and do shit anyway. (sighs) So probably call it like day three right now of actively trying to pull together an episode, episode 18. And uh, just kind of feeling, you know, writer's blocky and underqualified to, I don't know, tackle some of the topics that I want to discuss. Uh... But how or why, I don't even know, you know. Uh, Do I have a burden of being authoritative? You know, is that... Is that the position, you know, I'm trying to aspire to? Um, Do I want to be that at all? You know, uh, another one of a million self-proclaimed, self-appointed mansplainers, you know, who doesn't even necessarily, uh, you know, hold any particular qualifications that would even support such a aspiration, you know, achieved at all or not. What I need to do is try to develop, you know, a clear expression of, you know, whatever I want, the mission. weed garbage on the ground. I'll pick that up. You're welcome, Wild Walden. Walden Cannabis. Got your fucking pouch here. Yeah, I mean, obviously, maybe I'll use some of these comments and notes as sections. Little, little reflections. I don't know. This is like straight, you know, uh, Dear Diary fourth wall bullshit here. Uh, which is, uh, you know, a lot of what podcasting probably is for a lot of people, and maybe that's what it is for me, too. And there again, back to who gives a shit. Like, why would, why do people want to listen to that if it's just that? Uh, frankly, we can all do that on our Facebook walls every day and, and in our Instagram feeds and already do quite, you know, effectively uh, for that level of content. You know, the why me's and the look at me's and uh, the look at how great we are's you know, keyboard, social, you know, justice, warrioring, championing our favorite causes with likes and shares. I mean, and even even talking about that, even trying to like sit back and even observe about that is totally cliched right now as well. I mean, like everybody else is also continuously evaluating that and talking about that and critically analyzing that addiction dichotomy. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking about it and talking about it while continuing to use the very device that enslaves us all our cell phone our cell phone you know whatever else we call these things iphones androids everything else we all know that term cell phone a lot of people by now have also seen that meme that goes along with that emphasis on that word Anyway. So yeah, I mean, can a person, is there a place for, am I succeeding at, you know, even approaching a place where I'm, you know, creating quality for an audience that is receptive to it, that, you know, maybe was looking for it or wasn't looking for it? Came to it by happenstance, but either way, they're here. You know, and what to do together. Um, with the whole thing, and the whole thing is, you know, the opportunity to have to try to build a community. A, you know, I don't. I hesitate to call it an audience. Obviously, in a way, it is an audience of sorts. But yeah, build, build a community, not, not an echo chamber, but a place where you can actually talk and ask questions and ask weird questions. But Maybe I like the podcasting format because I can sit there at my desk and ask weird questions out loud conversationally. Okay, yeah, so let's see here. To continue. Uh, Yeah, so, I mean, who doesn't like something like the podcast format for sitting there and being a windbag about something that you like or, you know, want to wax philosophical about and not being interrupted and getting your point if you have one at all across. Um... So, sure. Obvious obvious allure there for somebody like me. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, you go out on your given social media platform and interrupt everybody's steady diet of, you know, BuzzFeed and boing boing links. Uh, cat pictures and funnier dies, memes and, you know, vacuous kind of maybe at best superficial attempts to fundraise for causes through weird local institutions like their, like our, you know, savings bank or whoever else it was who spammed our inbox with it that morning. Roped us into click and share on their bullshit for the Susan G. Coleman, whatever. Obviously, I have to say, after mentioning something, an organization like that by name, that I'm not anti cancer research or anti fundraising for the same. Those folks have been plagued, plagued with quite a bit of controversy, though, and it's been demonstrated that they're a little less than forthright in, at least in terms of the way most of us lay people would like to believe charitable contributions for medical research for dangerous and important diseases like that should be handled. But there again, who the fuck am I? shut up. I want to be able to shut up about stuff like that, that I don't want to have to take a position on and that I shouldn't have to take a big persuasive argument position on one way or the other. Um, And still come up with topics that are really great and fun to talk about. More importantly, thought provoking to listen to and hear about. You know, and having done so, halfway responsibly, you know, be part of a conversation that we are probably all having in chunks, here and there, with different people at different times. I think that's getting closer, a little closer to it, um... You know, Bacon Awake is a mask, obviously, it's a shell, it's a protected wall from which we, you know, I can hide behind and talk through these slats at everybody, and Steve can, you know, slightly protect himself, even though, you know, everybody closest to me knows exactly who they're listening to. I guess the good news is, most of those closest to me probably aren't really listening at all, with a few notable exceptions who I'm totally grateful for, obviously. And there's others who I'm close to or grew up with or was raised by or worked with somewhere along the lines. You know, many of whom I'd be just as happy if they never even heard about this thing, never even heard it existed. Taking a flack from them when I do bother to You know, post anything controversial, anything provocative. And where? In the two places that most people and the whole internet are above the age of 25 or so. Facebook and Instagram. Talk about monopolies.